Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandsbury. Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. My voice is as it should be, has had a weekend off from cricket yesterday, um, which is good because it was a bit too windy out there for me to, to be bothered with. And this week, we, we've thought you might have been tired of having a range of interesting and colourful guests to uh, to provide input. So we thought we'd go back to the traditional format, a touch old school, if you will, with uh, just myself and Simon. Evening, Simon. Good evening, Ian. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, that's an interesting spin on it. We thought we'd spare people the bother of having interesting guests to listen to. <laughs> well, I think the more I watch our our political masters... The whole concept of it doesn't matter what how you answer the question so long as you don't tell the truth. This seems to be, I, I thought I'd join in, you know, with the Prime Minister, would you like a cup of tea? I am absolutely committed to the consumption of all hot beverages, irrespective of their background and their origins. I asked you if you wanted a cup of tea. Um, yes, so so that, that that's my spin on it today. But um, this evening's episode is is we're, we're going to try and bring some balance, aren't we? Which God help the listeners. Uh, yes, well, we're going to try anyway. So um, although balance is a th- is a theme through uh, through the three topics that we've picked um, that we've picked tonight. So the first one is um, is we're going to have a talk about the uh, about the court of appeal um basically ruling that the government's policy of uh, sending asylum seekers to rwanda um in order to have their claims processed um that's been uh, ruled unlawful uh, by the court of appeal um which without shock the government weren't very happy about um this the, the second thing no. that we wanted to talk about is um if it's interesting we'll talk about interest um so we'll we'll talk about interest and see if we can compound um i, I don't know if we can compound the rate on that one um and then the third one was the was the report on um this week also from the privileges committee so um they've also issued a, rep- um, a report so after their their report uh, recently uh, to do with um, their investigation into whether or not the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson um, intentionally misled the House. Um, they've also issued a, issued a report um, uh, about how some MPs um, responded to or attempted to undermine or unduly influence or lobby. And they used actually stronger words than that in their report. Um, their their function as, a, as an investigatory body. Um, so, yeah. Um, not exactly simple and easy subjects to get to. No, we've we've set ourselves a bit of a challenge, and again, it's it, it, it's one of those things where, and I think in all cases, it, it, you know, there there is this, there are quite binary kind of positions on these, and and we're going to try and go a little bit uh, beneath that and find out whether there is a more common ground, and we be where you know, try and get a bit more detail behind the headlines. So shall, shall I kick off with Rwanda? Um, yes, indeed. You you kick off with Rwanda. So this first sub, this for, um, whole thing first kind of surfaced in April of 2022. And the position that the government was, was adopting was saying that 
the, their problem statement was that there are people entering the UK in small boats who are getting here via people traffickers and we wish to deter them. So the theory that they came up with or the plan they came up with, scheme, I think you can probably find some other names for it, was that what we'll do is transport the people to a safe, and I'll remember that word, safe, third country to be processed. And in that safe third country, their asylum applications would be processed. And the bit which wasn't clear in all of the research that I did, and I did do some research, it's not like me, was if they then were found to have a valid asylum claim, um, whether they could then come to the UK or whether they then were given asylum in Rwanda. Now, hugely politically um, offensive. Is that a fair word, Simon? I, I don't know, but I'm sure it. I'm sure it will come into play somewhere along the line. So you know, lot of lot of lot of outrage about this this being inhumane. Um, so I, I had a look, and it, and it was a question of, well, is this something that that other countries have adopted? So the first country to adopt um, processing people because let's be honest that's what these these people are you know it's whatever we choose to label them as their people was by australia um back in 2001 um so they made it clear that anybody who um, attempted to enter australia via a boat would be sent to either nauru or papua new guinea to be processed and in their original plan or in their original scheme those people could come back to australia if they're uh, asylum claim was found to be genuine that was up until 2018 when uh, they changed their policy and said well even if your um even if your request for asylum is found to be valid you get to stay in papua new guinea or nauru um so that's been their position and to be fair that was the you know similar to the australian style points system which they talk you know the government talks a lot about uh, that was kind of where the, the government came up with their Rwanda plan. So in terms of Rwanda, Israel, and let's be fair, Israel are not a state that anybody would want to mirror their behavior on, has been doing something similar with both Rwanda and Uganda for a number of years. And they effectively have a relationship with Rwanda whereby they tuck three and a half thousand dollars into the asylum seekers top pocket and say, there's your one-way ticket to Rwanda or Uganda, off you go. And they pay the Rwandan and Ugandan governments a fee for that. The other country that is attempting to set up a an identical system to the one proposed by the UK is Denmark. Now that surprised me, as Denmark is often held up as the as the kind of a virtuous and you know a little bit of a socialist utopia. Um, in terms of the way in which their social infrastructure, but they have been going down exactly the same path as the UK, where effectively they pay the Rwandan government to do the processing for them. And then uh, should they be successful or unsuccessful, they don't get to come back to Denmark. So that's the kind of outline of the scheme. Um, in both the cases of Denmark and the UK, both of those schemes have fallen foul of the European Convention on Human Rights, 
Denmark being one of the founder signatories of that film in 1951. Um, we came along a bit later and also signed up for it. And the ruling of the court this week, which was a 2-1 for the three judges that reviewed it, was that they deemed that Rwanda was not a safe country. So the European Convention on Human Rights basically says you cannot send anybody back to a country where they are liable to experience torture. And I think the the Rwandan kind of leadership has not been trusted that they would act as a fair and honest broker in terms of this relationship. So that's kind of where we've got to. Um, if you go and do a bit of a dig into Rwanda, it is a, in terms of an African nation, it is pretty well developed. Um, it doesn't have the same problems with corruption as some of the other nations. Now, whether it's a democracy or not is a moot point. Um, the president last year was re-elected. He obviously ran a very fine campaign as 99% of the votes were cast for him, which tends to cause an eyebrow to be raised about just how democratic a country Rwanda might be. And whilst they seem to have a cohesive social structure, um, there is very much a, 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 a should we say, a heavy state presence and a heavy state monitoring of the population, um, which would imply that it wouldn't be considered a, a democracy in any way that perhaps we in the West would understand democracy. So there's there's the whole Rwanda story in a um in a nutshell. What are your thoughts then, Simon? Um, well um I, I mean to me um it it's a very expensive what is it, hundred and eighty thousand pound per per person it's it's predicted to cost per per um Per asylum seeker that that yes. um, which I think it was LBC earlier on in the week said that actually um, King Charles and Queen Camilla went to Rwanda recently for only a little bit for about ten grand more than that. So um, it's kind of well aside from the the point scoring politics on that one. Sorry. So it's I, I just I don't I, I don't know my my reservations are kind of several fold in the sense of. Um, this is a solution that, that deals with um, or attempts to deal, to deal with actually the symptom of an issue rather than actually the fundamental issue. If, if as the government say, that what they want to do is to, is to stop people making the perilous journey in small boats ac across the English Channel in the same way that probably the, uh, the Greek and the, and the Italian um, governments want to stop people making similar journeys across the Mediterranean, um, I don't know that this is this is you know this is the way to do it because it rely it relies on uh, to be blunt it it relies on people being caught um, and if you want to smash yep. the business model of these uh, people taking advantage these these boat traffic these traffickers taking advantage of people then um, you need to you need to create legal routes and legal ways for for people uh, to be able to have their asylum status um, checked um, and assessed. Um, yep. or legal routes for um, non-asylum based uh, migration so there's to me it just seems to be a, a a tactic that 
might look good to certain to you know to certain types of supporters of 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 various political parties it's a you know it's one of it's one of um the pm's big five that it, that he keeps talking about i mean he celebrated yeah. last month about the about a percentage drop that was purely down to the weather so unless he's going to do something about the weather on the english channel i don't know that it's really going to have that much of an impact i i just can't help but thinking that Rwanda isn't. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on what the what the state of play is in Rwanda, but it seem it seems an immoral thing to do to me to be shipping off people who you should be um, helping or or at least assessing either either um, on mainland Europe so that you can carry out that carry that out that assessment quickly before they come to the UK, or you carry it out quickly in the UK. The reason there's a mass seems to be a massive issue is. Is this massive backlog? What's the what's the state of the backlog? Yeah, what's happening with that? Yeah, so so yeah, I mean the the, the interesting thing there is in terms of you know that that difference mm. between the two, um, there there were over a hundred thousand, um, there were over a hundred thousand applications for mm-hmm. asylum last year that came in via the and I'm going to put legal in air quotes uh, via the sort of the, the bona fide route and there were 45,000 who came in via small boats okay so you know at the moment at the moment it's about a third of the the people who are coming in via small boats now you're absolutely you're absolutely right to highlight the fact that part of the issue is the fact that in terms of legal in terms of the processing of those applications the UK runs hideously behind some of the um, some of the other countries in in Europe. Um, so in terms of, I've got the figures here somewhere in my document. Um, if we look at the number that we processed last year, it was about half of what they did. So, so let me just bear with me one second. So, so if we look back. Um, I've got my number slightly wrong. So if we actually look back, there were 103,000 applicants back in 2002 who applied for asylum. It fell to an all-time low to 22K in 2010. Last year, it went up to 89K. Now, you know, so there's the numbers. We've got roughly 90,000. Um, however, only 29,000 people were processed last year and the vast majority of those were people who had sought asylum in 2021. So when you start looking at it in terms of, I think the backlog at the moment is about 130k. So if we're only processing 30k a year, we've got four years worth of claims to process. Yeah, so so to me that 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 speaks about um, a level of incompetence and ineptitude, ineptitude. Either either the the process is unwieldy, or there aren't enough people um, to be doing the processing. Because um, it's it's not in the it, it's not in the interest of the asylum seekers for for them to be um, for them to be detained um, in circumstances while that while their case is being heard and that that to be dragging on seamlessly endless seemingly endlessly. Um, for them um, and it's also not a good thing for the you know for the for the British taxpayer because 
that's that costs um what is it something like six million pound a week or something to five five and a half million a pounds a day right. at the moment so yep yeah. So, and again, part of that challenge is that effectively um, anybody who is seeking asylum um, can't work mm -hmm. for 12 months whilst their process is being heard. Um, in the EU, that's nine months. And in the UK, after that 12 months, there is a limited list of roles that they can they can take up. So basically it says, look, if we've got a skills shortage or a, a shortage of workers in this area, then you know you you can take on those jobs so i have now found the right place in my notes um so in 2022 45 percent of all the asylum claims um that were that were heard um were people who had entered via the mm -hmm. small boat route so this talks to your your point of um you know it, it it talks to the fact that they're they're you know people are choosing that route rather than the air quotes again legal routes um now, one I'd, thing which uh, it's an aside, I'd, but it is a for me, I I was stunned um, in the, you know, if you would have asked me, you know, who, where are these people coming from? You know, I would have picked Syria and Iraq and Iran and um, Afghanistan, you know, places across the world which we know to be troubled. But the largest uh, the largest group of asylum seekers were Albanians. Um and the government is actually at the moment going through a process of of trying to get to the point of establishing that Albania is in fact a quote unquote safe country. So, you know, effectively rendering people unable to claim asylum if they are coming from Albania. So um, I, I think that came as a shock to me, Simon. I'm not sure many folk would have guessed that Albania was... Um, was the the country supplying the most folk into small um, boats? I, I mean, it's it, it's a it's a stand it's a standout figure. I don't I don't think it's a surprise because it's something the the government have been uh, have been briefing the media on. To be honest with you, so it's it's not exactly hidden in the hidden in numbers. It is something they've been making something of. Can I just uh, point out something that the concern is that this isn't um, it's not a choice. Because the only countries from there are very very limited countries from which actually you can apply, um, you can apply in what the government is terming legally um, for asylum in the UK, um, and I, I, mm. I don't have the list in it, um, exhaustively, but those are pretty much limited to um, Afghanistan, um, Hong Kong, Ukraine. Um, there's probably you know there's I'm sure there's a, a few other countries, but it's not, it's not as as broad a list as um as basically the, the the rest of the planet i can kind of take the point of um why supposedly free open democratic safe societies um you you can make a case that they're you know what what's the kind of the need for seeking as, asylum from um from those countries but i i think this is the this is the problem is that having removed all means of doing it legally People, we've created yep. a situation. It's, it's like actually, um, uh, this is probably a really poor example to choose, but it's it's like the drugs trade, right? Because there is no legal supply, all of the supply is illegal, um, and therefore it's unregulated. Mm. Therefore, it's unsafe. Um, and therefore you have actually no control over it and your only mechanism is to try and catch the small the small number of 
um, shipments that you would catch. And, and essentially, this is this isn't smuggling um, retailable drugs into into the UK. This is this is smuggling people in into the UK who are who are coming here with with hopes of, hopes hmm. of a better life. So it, I, I just I just find it a bizarre choice of policy to go for well we're not going to create any legal routes for this to be assessed we're not for example going to set up um, agree with the french government to set up processing centers in calais or in a, or in other um major french um ports for example um in order to be able to process those or in other or indeed in other countries so that perhaps people won't be schlepping halfway across europe in order in order to be processing or we're not seeking to reach agreements with other countries or indeed with the EU, where people can be saying, actually, I want to be um, seeking asylum in the UK, and then therefore that that actually being processed and arranged. Uh, we're leaving all of these people at the mercy of of these, of basically ruthless people that basically want to just take their money, put them in really unsafe boats, and don't, and don't care, because their business model is, you give me a couple of grand, I'll shove you in a, in mm. a boat, and you might get there, you might not. Um <sighs> I don't know. It just doesn't strike me as a logical way to deal with it, and it, and it, and it just seems inhumane. I, so I don't, I, think, I don't think the policy is the sense is a sensible um, is a is sensible or pragmatic, even though other countries have done similar things. Yeah, I think the I think the challenge, Simon, and this is where and this is where it's boiled down to, you know, this is where I think it's boiled down to to the the, the polarization which we talk about and the lack of balance. You know, stop the boats is is a kind of you know because they're all full of they're just young fit men who are you know they're, they're terrorists aren't they that's what the boats are full of you know i always think you know if you and i'll steal steal this one from a, a comedian i saw the other week he said yeah because obviously if you're going to walk from damascus you're, you're going to send granny not your not your 20 year old lad to make that journey um but then on the other side there is this element of of you know, if, and again, I'm using the polarizing language, which I don't agree with, but that's everyone who's in one of those boats is a, is is somebody who's suffered terrible hardship and dreadfulness and their last resort is coming to the UK. So we've got this kind of, we've got this polarization, um, which is the, you know, I guess the question is, and this is where the, you know, we, if we agree that it is a problem that we don't want people paying traffickers to enter the UK via that route across the channel, the question of how we stop them doing that is, is I guess it's that question of, you know, as you say, it's either greater facilitation to process that claim or it's a deterrent. Well, that's the that you know that's the thing. If you've got a if you've got a processing center for the applications um, on the French mainland, for example, that's you know if you yep. if you were someone in that desperate situation, you've literally walked across Europe, um, and you're faced with giving someone a couple of grand in order to put you into a boat that you don't know whether you're going to live from, or you can go to this processing um, administrative center where you can have your claim processed um which would you choose to do yeah i'm i'm sure some would still to, should no, choose I, to take the risk but i'm sure most would probably think um do you know what um if you're and and this is the other thing is what sort of what sort of future can you have 
in in the country it, how desperate do you need to be to go to all of those measures to take all of those risks to get a future in a country where you're going to have to spend the rest of your life looking over your shoulder if you if you if you're not yeah, if you don't actually think, you know arrive yeah. you know claim asylum actually when you get here you, you know well, that's the yeah and it, and 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 it's a, it's an area we kind of i didn't research mm. or we didn't look at but the, 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 the you know one of the one of the things and I, it's always been a problem for me in terms of under international law you, you do not have to claim asylum in the first quote unquote safe country that you arrive in i i that is the law you know i don't necessarily agree that it is the right thing uh, the bit that I, I and i don't know whether there's been research done on this is whatever you're fleeing from if you are in france you are safe france well you're not at the moment because obviously france is having its own political turmoils and riots and everything else but fundamentally you know the the the, the safety of of mainland europe versus the safety of the uk i see is very comparable so there is a piece and i don't know whether this has been looked into but it's that what motivates somebody to take what is a high risk crossing at some fairly substantial cost, as you say, it's not, you know, it's not 30 quid for a weekend saver ticket um, to come to the UK because something has motivated 45,000 people last year to take what is effectively a very perilous crossing in the hope of a new life um, yeah and uh, well there are i mean i don't have the numbers to hand but there there is research on that and it's and it's usually comes down to they either have familial connections in the uk um or quite simply um because they speak english um if if suddenly everything went wrong in portsmouth and you and i were needing to seek asylum somewhere and the and the rest of great britain what was was going to be a problem would you seek would we seek to escape to france or would we seek to escape to ireland where they where they they speak the language or would we you know look to look for places like um like belgium or the netherlands where to be honest with you speaking english is so prevalent that um that that you know that it, it you know language wouldn't be a barrier it's, I, I think there are quite clear sensible mm. and obvious reasons why people um why people choose to come to the uk um but it's also worth dispelling yes. any any concept that, that or a mini, any misapprehension that people might have that people choose to come here because um for any particular you know reason of brilliance of what their impression is of the of the country or that then they're not choosing to go to other countries other countries per capita take in a much greater number of um, asylum seekers than, than we do and they don't have the prop they don't seem to have the problems processing well, them that we do no they don't and actually if we look at that one of the uh, although there is an interesting stat which i again i was surprised by um you know just a quick aside there um you know often the 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 tone adopted is that well we're full aren't we we can't take any more people um we did take in 167,000 refugees from Ukraine last year um which obviously was more than double the number of folk who came from all other countries so um so again a couple of stats for you so 
in terms of in 2021, the UK had the fourth largest number of asylum seekers behind Germany, France and Spain. Now, if we look at France, um, you know, France, similar population. Now, we we um, processed 22,000 applications um, and we approved 64% of those. So hold those figures in your mind. France had 137,000 applications compared to our 22. Uh, but they only approved 25% of those. And Germany approved 45%. So there is an element at the moment of the UK is processing those applications painfully slowly. But in terms of your chance of getting asylum, and maybe this is a contributory factor, um, you know, it is, you are a third more likely to get asylum in the UK than you are in Germany, and two and a half times more likely to get asylum than you are in France, based on the 2021 figures. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that's, that's interesting, there's interesting stats, but still, those countries are still able to process much larger numbers of uh, asylum applications um uh, so the, to me the fundamental cruelty of our process is that it takes so long to reach a decision and you know that that can't mm. be good for the applicant the applicants or for their families um and it's and it's you know it's not it's not good it's not good for the country so it ju it just or the yeah, and the, the taxpayer, taxpayer. Who's, yep. who's, who's footing the bill. So, so to me, I think the argument, and, and I kind of I return to kind of my my original point is, if as the government say, what you're trying, what you want to do, is to break the business model of the people selling the the passages on these unsafe boats. This doesn't seem like a this isn't a logical way to do it. It's actually a very expensive and ineffective way to do it. And someone ran the numbers of something mm. like because of the they looked at how many in order for this to be cost of in order for this to be um, sorry to cost less than putting people up in hotels like we currently do. Um, it needs to deter um, deter people trying to cross the channel that way by about something like about sixty percent. In, in order for in order for in order for that yeah. to make the case because if it's costing about 180,000 pounds to to send an asylum seeker to Rwanda and process them there whatever the outcome um the, then it's so we get you know if your argument is it's not cost it doesn't it's it's costing the british taxpayer loads of money this solution is going to cost the british taxpayer loads of money if your argument is that you want to break the business model of the boat of the boat traffickers I don't know that they're not going to continue to play the numbers until there's a viable alternative. So it, it just seems really wrong-headed of me that, um, that that that's kind of the way to go. But the the you know the point the point being from the um, from the court of appeal saying basically that it's that it's it's being ruled unlawful. That the government obviously are making noises about what they need to do to um, to appeal against that and also to um, yeah. you know do any further legislative changes in order to be able to satisfy themselves that it's not. Um, amoral um, and um, unfortunately yeah to... I mean to, to be to be mm. fair the grounds on mm. which it was rejected was that Rwanda yeah. is unsafe um, so that's what mm -hmm. they'll appeal on uh, ultimately they can't they can't legislate that away 
And that's where I think that's why they're so frustrated is because okay. there's an element of if the legal position is that Rwanda is unsafe, you can't send people there unless you decide to again you can't rule anything out i think the thing which i've 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 come to the conclusion on simon having looked through this um i i, I you know if we put as much energy and as much oomph behind processing a hundred thousand people a year and we were to you know have similar outcomes to germany and france I think this problem goes away. Well, funny enough, yes. If you've got a backlog and you um, and you clear the backlog, um, a great deal of the suffering caused by the backlog um, dis- disappears. Um, so, yeah, I, th- this to me just seems like a solution in search of a headline instead of a. So this this is a policy in search of a headline instead of a solution. So, um, but there we go. That was that was item. Yeah. One. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's a divert. It, it does have a diversionary mm. element because even the most hardline kind of xenophobe, if they think that Rwanda is the solution to the boats, then they probably shouldn't be given anything sharper than a crayon to write with. That's um. We should get t-shirts with that. <laughs> um. Okay. Right. Let, let's talk interest okay, so, then. Um, so let's get interesting. So, um, and I'll just remind people while we while we um, switch to talking about interest rates, uh, please do continue to follow the conversation and join in on either our Facebook or YouTube. Um, and you can uh, like, follow, subscribe, uh, subscribe on um, Facebook or subscribe bottom right bottom right hand corner on YouTube. Um, or indeed, you can scan the QR code in the top left hand corner. To go to our website to um, to follow us wherever you get your audio podcast, so that you can listen to us later on if um, if your preference is that you'd rather not look at us while we're talking. So um, so our second object um, subject was about interest rates. So um, so the the uh, the Bank of England, having been given the power in 1998 to set interest rate uh, policy in the UK. Um, thereby removing it from political hands, as that was a bit something that was scrap um, that was a bit scrappy in the eighties and nineties with the Thatcher Thatcher government. Um, so the the Monetary uh, Policy Committee at the Bank of England um, announced that interest rates uh, would be increasing by 05 percent to five percent, um, a level they haven't been at um, since two thousand and eight. Um, and um, very, very far away, it seems, from their remit of getting interest, um, getting interest rates down to, or sorry, getting inflation down to 2%. So our inflation is uh, mm. 8.7%, um, which is um, much higher than most of our um, most comparable countries um, that we're dealing with. Um, and I, I don't know, for, for me, kind of the... So the theory is that by raising the interest, the interest rates, um, you supposing that banks pass on the interest rate um, increase to savers. Um, the theory being that it would encourage people to save and certainly discourage people and businesses from borrowing money because it's going to get it's going to be ever dearer to borrow money. So um, in a sense, essentially, um, the idea being that inflation is caused by an overheating economy where um, demand is much higher than supply. Um, so if you've got a situation at the yep. moment where um, where demand is much higher than supply, um, and that's not because 
the, the economy is overheating because our, our GDP is um, is flatlining. So it's not it's not that. It's just that the demand, the, sorry, that the supply is is low. So uh, rather than fix the issues of supply, um, which obviously isn't something within the remit of the Bank of England, um, you try to reduce demand in order to meet match it, uh, bring it down to the level that supply is. And this is our. 13th um, interest rate rise um, and was it Einstein that said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result yeah yeah I mean I, the, the fact is it's that element of you know the Bank of England's in this position and you, you touched on sort of the economy and GDP and so there is an element of the the Bank of England their approach is to use a sort of driving analogy is to feather the brakes. You know, they if they stamp on, you know, if they were to, if let's say a year ago, they slammed interest rates up by a percentage and a half, that would cause a shock in the economy. It would lead to recession. Everybody's sad. So they've been sort of gently squeezing a quarter percent here, a half a percent there, a quarter percent there. Um, to take us up to this level of 5%. And it, it, it is this, it, it is an element of when we kind of look at it, uh, I, it, it is a very crude instrument. So as, you, as you've explained, the theory is basically that if people have got disposable money, they look at the interest rates and they say, oh, do you know what? It'd be good to put that in the bank rather than spend it. Um, but I think that the thing for me, which is, and it's why for me it's not working, is that inflation at the moment is is not caused by, you know, or you could argue, you know, it, most of it is not caused by discretionary spend. You know, we are sat here on a Sunday evening using electricity that is much, much more expensive than it was. Um Food inflation is again, and that sort of fuel-based inflation um, goes through everything. You know, every product that we buy, um, you know, is fuel is a major cost to it. You know, we have seen wage rise inflation um, starting to to creep in. Um, you know, the minimum wage went up by about ten percent in April. So, you know, we've got this situation now where there is simply, um, you know, food and your the power to heat and cook and do the basic things in your home is not something you've got a lot of discretion about cutting back on um no it's um it, it's not and that's the thing for me of the you know the bank of england effectively only have one tool um and to me it seems like they're trying to use mm. a screwdriver when a spanner is required um and it's you know mm. it's the one tool that they've got but it Yes, it, it, it's a tool that enables you to deal with the disparity between demand and supply. It's weird how much of this comes down to the difference between demand and supply, which I always find really interesting for, because um, you know certain parts of the political spectrum dine out much on the fact that they're you know that the freedom of um, the free market is the is the answer to to lots of things. Um, and I'm and just to clarify, I'm not an ardent communist. But I just find it interesting that the very basic of the free market economy, basis of the free market economy is you have supply, you have demand. If you've got lots of supply, but not very much demand, it pushes prices down. If you've got lots of demand, but not very much supply, it pushes prices up. And that applies to houses. It applies to, it applies mm. to labor. It applies to chicken fillets in Tesco. It's the, it, you know, it, the, the same kind of principle applies. So I just, 
I don't know. I just find it strange that, again, it seems well, like a solution that doesn't address the, the fundamental issue. Yes, it will make them, it will bring well, demand down, but it will do it by effectively putting the skids on the economy to um, to the degree that pretty much anybody with any discretionary spending can't spend it on all of the other things that keep the, a service-run economy like ours going because they're spending mm-hmm. it all on their mortgage or their rent or their electricity or their gas um, or their water bill to pay for the privilege of having their own poop shoved, um, um, pumped back at them. So it, I, I don't know. It just... I don't. I don't know that. I don't have the answer. Well, I just know that I have a deep feeling that this isn't no, the right one. No, and isn't it fascinating? And it's only just struck me that one of Rishi's big five is to half inflation. Now it's only just struck me the fact that well, that's not his job, is it? That's the Bank of England's job. They yeah. outsource that. So um, you know, and I know at the time there was some. Well, that's supposed to happen anyway. That's just that's what the forecast says. So. You know, thank you for tying your colours to that one. Um, but again, it shows perhaps a lack of judgment that now when each month the, the figures are revealed and everyone says, oh, oh, we thought it might have dropped by a couple of percentage points this month. Oh, it stayed pretty static. But um, yeah, I think the, the, there is this piece. And, and you know, I, I do wonder whether the whole, you know, is that is part of the model and perhaps this is a tangent we don't want to go down but there is we do live in a society of more instant gratification and more immediacy and i do wonder whether there's an element of well if at the end of the month you've got let's say a hundred quid spare are you going to put your hundred quid into your savings account you know because now you're going to get two and a half percent, which means, you know, in a year's time, little Simon, your hundred pounds will be worth a hundred and two pounds. And <laughs> yeah, so it hundred and two pounds fifty. However, your hundred pounds will now only buy you ninety two pounds worth of goods. So I do wonder whether you you might choose to invest your hundred pounds in going up the pub for a slap up feed rather than the the promise of the two pound fifty. I, I don't even have that time. choice because because my mortgage has gone up by <laughs> has gone up by um, more than more than sixty percent in the last three years. So um, so I, yeah. I don't have a choice about whether to spend two pound fifty in the pub because two pound fifty isn't going to buy me much so in the you, pub. To be honest with you, because I'm no. I'm already in in the hole for another two hundred quid a month for my mortgage. Yeah, yeah, it is a it's an inelegant solution, and um, yeah, it it is that piece where I mean I think we're just all going to have to. If you say we're all going to have to knuckle down because we're all in it together, I'm going to scream. <laughs> no, I was going to go for just hold tight and hope because I'm not sure we got well, much more. I, than I was, that. I was, call me naive. Still, after all of the years proving us otherwise, that I was hoping that the people in charge would have actually something resembling at least half of a bloody clue, but it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't seem that. I mean, just just to give us a comparison. Uh, so interest rates as of May this year. So the UK is at eight point seven percent. Sorry, the um, inflation. This is sorry, not interest rate. Inflation in the UK is at eight point seven percent. In the eurozone, it's six point one percent. 
um, and um, when you think there are, you know, there are, you know, they're in the nearest um, trade economies that we trade with. Um, I think the the America is is it four percent? Um, he's got he's looking at us. Yeah, so so he, for and this is the other thing with the unfortunately. You're, you're right. The government seem to keep going to media and promising things that are actually outside of their control or that they can't deliver or promising things that they're going to try to convince us that they have delivered. Um, but at the same time, trying to tell us that other countries have got it worse than us when it comes to... Inf- yeah, there are other countries that have got it worse than us. Like, um, like you know, Argentina, yep. it's, it's inflation's at 97% or um, Zimbabwe's where it's where it's 150 hey, yeah. yes they are worse they are in a worse situation than us yes but we're not comparing ourselves against them are we we're comparing ourselves against um, yeah and and, it, and and but it is that element isn't it where and again because it's an inexact science you know if if there was a situation where you know if we look in back in April the question then is well was the government right to increase the minimum wage and um universal credit and and all of the you know disability benefits by 10% because that is only going to fuel inflationary pressure you know should they have should they have taken the the austerity to this time it's really unpleasant approach and said you know nurses go and get stuffed doctors in fact everybody in the public sector you can all go and boil your asses again um it'll be a one percent maximum pay rise this year because we you know we've got to fight inflation um, um i i don't think that was the right no, answer and, either. and 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 the, the, and the thing for me is that um we, when you go into the detail of the of the statement that the the bank of england uh, made when you look through it it talks about food inflation um, is edged down slightly um, this, yep. this this time, but it's still at eighteen point three percent. Now the wages in Tesco haven't gone up by eighteen percent, right? No. Nope. So um, you know, I, I think it's a. I don't. I don't think yes. The the wages that a business pays are part of its a part of its costs, so they're an impact against against its bottom line. But I'm not entirely unconvinced that that some parts of the economy aren't using this as a reason to increase prices where where where, 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 they, can, where they can yeah. um and so it is ironic oh, to hear yeah. hear a, a a british prime minister who's the ex chancellor exchequer who's a conservative prime minister talk about um in name only <laughs> okay you you can sulk at half past 7 um Talking, talking about basically companies making more profit than they should, and and then essentially kind of price gouging. It's an it's an interesting kind of reversal of uh, reversal of fortune. Um, but also the other things that's that's deeper in the statement is talking about how um, how wage rises. Um, so the average weekly um, earnings um, are up by seven point six percent. Um, however, those increases are in the um, in the service and financial sectors, um, whereas sectors like wholesale, retail, and and um, restaurants, the ledger ledger industry, the settlements are flatlining. So, you know, so again, the trouble with you and you have to use averages in this sort of in this sort of analysis. But the trouble with mm. looking at the averages is it hides that some parts of the economy and indeed some people 
are suffering really badly and are actually not doing very well at all out of this whole situation. And this, um, you know, if anybody dares to get in front of a microphone from the government and say that we're all in this together, I think they're likely to have, you know, eggs thrown at them at least. Um, So it's... Well, yeah, yeah. I I think there's an element of, I think... I think we're all in it, but to varying depths. And the fact is that if it's, you know, if it's round your ankles or it's round your knees, it's kind of, you know, it's not ideal. But if it's up around your chest or you're going under completely, then that's a lot more in it together than um, than others. And I think that this is, uh, yeah. Oh, you know, again, from a personal perspective, I, I used to love it at 025 because back in the, in those heady days of the 90s under the nice Mr. Tony Blair, I got myself a cheeky little lifetime of the mortgage Bank of England base rate plus 1%. So, uh, yeah, I, I was laughing for a number of years. I'm not sure that I'm I'm laughing quite as hard now, but I know I'm in in a better situation than, than anybody else who's going on a fixed variable at the moment trying to get a, a new deal. Yeah. So, um, yes tough times mm. indeed yeah um and again i i repeat we're not here to provide the answers we're just providing the commentary on what's happening because oh. um clever and a clever, cleverer heads than ours would have have ideas but you you, you want to push all the levers rather than just continually pushing one and hoping that it works um in that one so yeah. what was the last yeah. topic privilege ah, and what a what privilege, what a privilege it you. is to discuss it so um so on uh, June thirtieth, um, basically the the Privileges Committee. Um, so in line with, as I said at the top of the show, in line with their report that they issued, um, was it last week or the week before? I can't remember now. The whole Johnson thing. It feels like a it feels like, it feels like a lifetime ago. It's yep. certainly a political lifetime. Um, so so the Privileges Committee uh, basically issued issued a report where they highlighted some uh, some real deep concerns. Um, about uh, about the conduct of some MPs um, and how they had attempted to um, to lobby or even beyond lobby um, influence um, undermine and nay probably even bully would be paraphrasing probably their their, their surnames I'm sorry their 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 own words um, but yeah so the, so the privileged committee which. Um, which I remind everybody is made up of four Conservative MPs, two Labour MPs and one SNP um, MP, um, were even subject to an email campaign from was it Conservative um, Democracy Organisation who'd sorted out an email campaign and they received uh, 600 emails um, basically calling on the Conservative members of that committee to uh, to stand down and renounce it. Um, there were various other um, MPs, um, the likes of um, Nadine Dorries, the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, the likes of Michael Fabrican, um, uh, and others that were cited and in the report in the in this report. And thankfully, it's a much shorter report than the one they gave the other week into the investigation into um, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Um, they cite the examples of of of, um, of the things that um, these MPs have said. Um, essentially calling on um, calling on it being investigated that these conservative MPs don't find themselves parachuted into a safe seat 
um, calling it a kangaroo court, um, calling it basically a, a you know a mob just basically out to get Boris Johnson, all, all those sorts of things. Um, and, and essentially, that in the context of the Privileges Committee is the only mechanism by which um, anyone in the House of Commons can be um, can be brought to book for basically lying um, to or missing or deliberately mm. misinforming the House of Commons or or any other sort of conduct. So normally the convention, and this is a, one of the wonders of, a, of an unwritten constitution, one of the conventions is that if a minister. Um, happens to misinform the house which sometimes happen they say they quote the wrong figure for example then they are relied upon to correct the record at the earliest opportunity um if they've yep. deliberately um or seem to be deliberately and recklessly uh, misinforming the house which is essentially the charge leveled against uh ex-prime minister johnson um which he decided to resign as an mp from rather than actually um try to um try to make his case um, so the Privileged Committee are the only mechanism by which the House can then investigate those sorts of situations and come up with a um, some recommendations. And if those involve a sanction against that particular MP, then the House itself votes on whether to accept those recommendations or not. So essentially, it is quite literally being judged by your peers um, in a sense of these are all the people that are in the House of Commons um, together with me and they either agree with me or they don't. And it is for them to decide whether whether I have done uh, done such an egregious thing that it that merits the um, the sanction that's recommended uh, by the Privileges Committee. Um, um, and if that um, if that sanction involves a suspension of more than ten days, um, then actually the constituents of that MP can um, can actually call for a by election. So it's quite um, so. One of the things that they some of the things that they say in their statement. Um, where they, they talk about actually the importance of um, so they talk about in our final report on uh, Mr Johnson's conduct we drew attention to the fact that our democracy depends on MPs being able to trust that what ministers say in the House of Commons is the truth if ministers cannot be trusted to tell the truth the House cannot do its job and the confidence of the public in our whole political system is undermined that's quite kind of you know any any yep, court yep. can't work if people don't tell the truth. That's why you have you have judges and you have barristers to try and get to the truth and expose expose the truth, especially when someone isn't necessarily telling it. Um, the work of the privileges privileges committee is therefore crucial to our democracy and must itself be protected. If the House agrees to a motion to refer a matter of conduct to the committee, members of the House must respect that decision and allow the investigation to proceed without interference all of these things seem perfectly mm. logical and seem to be things that shouldn't to me seem to be things that shouldn't need to be said and for and for me the the um and it, and it goes on to uh, it goes on to refer to erskine mays which is essentially the 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 writing of the uh, of the if you like the unwritten rules of of actually um being a member of the house in, in that um you know it's clear that to molest members on account of their conduct in parliament is a is a contempt um and you know. I, and I, yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, Simon, this whole thing, this actually, I, I find this whole affair deeply troubling because for me, it actually cuts to the very heart of the democratic process. And what troubles me more than anything else is the cult of personality. And it's the fact that 
no matter how guilty some of our most prominent politicians are of wrongdoing, some of those high profile figures, there is still people willing to defend them and willing to challenge the very articles and central tenets of our democracy, even though they are clearly they, they are indefensible. Yeah. And I think this is the this is where I, I just, you know, at the end of the day, if if based on everything that's happened and all of the evidence that is available, both in the public domain and to the Privileges Committee, if you believe that Boris Johnson didn't know what is what was happening and that rules were broken during lockdown, you are a flat earther. There is nothing we, anybody can say to convince you otherwise. You are, you are deluded to the point where I, I don't know what anyone could say to help you. Um, yeah, and um, it would be, I think it would be a, a lazy characteristic to categorise, because the, these, pe these, these people aren't, not to be blunt, they're not stupid. They're they're no. they're they're no. they're saying you know they're they're um grabbing a bit of Orwell. They're telling you not to trust the evidence of your own eyes, um and yep they're trying you know they're trying to trying to get you to 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 trying to convince you that the establishment is what done for Johnson, not you know not uh, not his behaviour, not his conduct, not his lying. Um, despite that being something he's been pretty much either sacked from or left pretty much most of the jobs that he seems to have had um i i, I just i i don't know i i mean aside from that people people can either be fans of or and acolytes of him if they want at the end of the day that people are perfectly mm. entitled to their own opinion but for me i agree fundamentally it's about the power of our democracy and i thought one of the things that we'd yep. spent six years arguing about was about the strength and sovereignty of our of our parliament which is the heart of our democracy and if and if the way you yep. defend our democracy is by undermining some of the mechanisms by which it uh, it the checks and balances it has in place to hold against uh, abuse of power if that that's not that's not a healthy democratic thing and if you think that's a yep. healthy democracy you're not you're not a champion of democracy you're a champion of something else um yeah and and it is that it is that approach, and I, I you know I, I you know again it's not one to go in on this one, but you know the, the, again there's a thread, there's a couple of threads or a, a couple of threads running in in the uh, Portsmouth Politics Facebook page about you know still about how Jeremy Corbyn was dragged down by the establishment and the establishment did for him, and 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 there are parallels, you know for me. There is a it, it, it is that element of and it, it what worries me is that if you look at American politics and we've touched on this before a year after the American election 70 percent of Republican voters believed that Trump had been cheated out of the election when there was absolutely no empirical evidence for that and I think th this episode of you know the the potential undermining of the privileges committee and the attempts to to effectively put partisan party lo loyalty or personal loyalty to a character above democracy, good parliamentary process and the truth. It, it's something that really everyone has to stand against and call it out for what it is.
Um, yeah, um, I, I, I don't really have much more to, to say to that. I, ju- I just think, you, you know, you either, you either believe in and champion. Look, I'm quite, you know, the whole purpose of our show is that we have people that disagree with each other get together and talk about the merits of their individual of their perspective um their points I, I don't know that any of them have succeeded in changing anyone else's sorry either, each other's minds but it's a different thing you know you can disagree with someone's policies that's the point of a democracy you, you don't have to have uh you don't have to have universal agreement again that's a different political model <sighs> But but there's a point where Rwanda. There's a, but there's a there's a there's a point where I don't know. It's a, I try not to not to get kind of really dramatic about it. But to me, it's actually very very alarming that you have these things being said by people in positions of power um, and them not being called out that that's actually a that's really actually attack on democracy itself. That they're able to gaslight enough people into believing that they're the ones that are championing democracy is is strange and terrifying it is but the good news is like a light shining through the clouds we will be here to ensure there is fairness and balance so on that bombshell you've been listening to the pompey politics podcast I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And I've been Simon Sansbury. Please do join us next week at 627 uh, when we'll have our next um, our next show on the 16th of July. We'll also have a show where we'll look at the uh, the next um, uh, the, what's on the agenda for the um, for the full council meeting uh, Portsmouth City Council, which is um, which takes place on Tuesday, the 18th of July. So the 16th, we'll be looking at the agenda. And then on July the 23rd, we are we are enamoured to be joined uh, by a council leader, Steve Pitt, who's going to be sharing us his vision for the city. So uh, join us next week. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, etc. Send biscuits, cups of tea. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows, and get to know when we're live. We normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening. Then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa, play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. Stop. See? It's easy.